Uh, now, we're going to get into our series, but before we get there, I want to apologize. It looks like we have a mess on stage this weekend, but uh, later on, I'm going to give you a glimpse into what you're going to expect at the Christmas production. It's going to be incredible, but listen, if you have a ticket, you have to show up, okay? We have people waiting online, checking every 10 minutes to see if any tickets are being returned. So if you're not, over 15,000 seats have been reserved. If you have a ticket, you're not going to use it. Even one ticket, if you will return it, I guarantee you someone will snatch it up. So make sure that you're here. And just to give you a little, a little insight as to what's gone on behind the scenes to get ready for, for the 11 production services this weekend, just, just watch the screen here for a second. So I'm at Disney World and I run into a family from South Carolina who says, we recognize you from Hope. You're our destination every Christmas Eve for your service. And I thought, wow, what if we could become the destination for everybody in the triangle for Christmas? This year at Hope, Christmas is gonna be amazing. We've pulled out all the stops. We've built an amazing website. We've been doing social media marketing. We have 30 second commercial spots playing at movie theaters all over the triangle. We're doing everything we can to make sure that people can make it to Hope this Christmas. Each year we try to, you know, come up with a creative way of expressing the Christmas story. I think what's unique this year, it's just still telling that story, but yet it's coming alive in just a way that culminates in these moments of real beauty. I'm so excited for people to finally sit down, just imagining what they're going to be seeing on the screens and hearing simultaneously. I think it's going to be so moving. The music, I'm pumped. We have original music, we have new arrangements to some classics that we all enjoy, and songs are just gonna make you feel like, you know what, it's Christmas. There's so much creativity and passion going into everything we're filming, everything we're animating. I think this year it's something like 300% more animation than we've ever tried before. It's gonna be an incredible experience. We have a 150 foot video wall. It's gonna be massive. The whole stage is gonna come to life. I just can't wait to see it myself. So, as you can see, Christmas this year, bigger than ever. Nobody's going to want to miss it. So make your, sure you're here. In fact, we have figured out a way, since you got your tickets online, if you got tickets and those seats are empty, we can send a virus to your computer and shut you down for 2016. So make sure, make sure that you actually follow through and use, use those tickets. So this weekend, we are wrapping up our series, Guess Who's Coming to Christmas? And we've taken a different approach to Christmas this year. Instead of the manger and the shepherds and the angels or the animals surrounding it, I think I've looked at Christmas from every perspective, including the roosters. I mean, after 35 years, you run out of ideas. We've been looking at the family tree of Jesus, and I tell you what, there's a definite lesson that I've learned from this series. Be really, really, really careful when you click on to Ancestry.com to look into your family background. I mean, it's one thing to find out and discover that you're a direct descendant of Abraham Lincoln. That's probably pretty cool. But it's another thing to discover that your great-grandpa's third cousin twice removed on your mother's side is Adolf Hitler. See, that's the kind of thing that you want to kind of keep to yourself, keep a secret. Because see, when we look into our family tree, we're hoping to find respectable people, good people, people who are productive members of societies. But what we're learning in this series is that when Matthew wrote his account of the life of Jesus, he didn't begin with the birth of, in Bethlehem, the manger, the shepherd, the angels, the star. He didn't begin with that. He began with Jesus' family tree. And we've learned in this series it's because he wanted to prove to his Jewish audience that Jesus was related to Abraham, which made him a Jew, but he also wanted to make sure that his listeners understood that Jesus also came through the lineage of King David. And it's because every Jew knew that the Messiah was supposed to come eventually through King David. And so Matthew in his genealogy, he goes all the way back to Matthew, I mean all the way back to Abraham, he traces his way up through King David right up to Jesus. But in our study, we've also uh, discovered that Matthew did something a little bit odd because not only does he underscore the right people, people like Abraham, people like Isaac, people like Jacob, people like David, 
We've seen that he also highlighted some of the sleazy, creepy, even R-rated characters in Jesus' past. In fact, we've seen that Matthew highlighted some people that if they showed up in our family tree, we would make sure that everybody, you know, made sure that they never saw those names. We would just kind of hide and we'd keep that a secret. We'd keep that to ourselves. And we've learned this because Matthew wanted to know that since the very beginning of time, all the way back to the book of Genesis, he wanted us to know that God has distributed his grace, his mercy, and his forgiveness to people who didn't deserve it. In other words, as we sit here this weekend, regardless of what we have or haven't done, regardless of how good we've been or how bad we've been, he wants us to understand that God still is in the business of distributing his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness to us. That is the message of Christmas, and that's why it's good news for all people. And so let's go back and see what Matthew writes. Matthew chapter one, verse one. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah. We looked at Judah last week, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Amenadab, Amenadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. And I can guarantee you that Matthew's Jewish audience cringed when they heard the name Rahab. And it's because, hey, Rahab had a nickname, didn't she? She was Rahab the, oh, you can say it in church. Let's try that one more time. She was Rahab the, Rahab the harlot. But because it's Christmas, from here on out, we will refer to her as Rahab the ho-ho-ho. Just to kind of keep it in the, in, the, in the Christmas spirit this weekend. Hey, by the way, let me just say this. She's not the only person in the Bible with a nickname. Let me give you, let's just give you a little test here. Just shout out. There is John the, all right, you guys are much better than the Saturday crowd. Let's go back to our series on David. You have the story of David and Bathsheba. Bathsheba's husband was Uriah the Hittite. Three of you were here for the series. That's awesome. Let's see how many of you have read through the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, we have Simon the, yeah, sorcerer. You can read about that one day. There's some cool stuff in the Bible. You should check it out sometime. Here's one, Jabba the Not in the Bible. However, the word Jabba is. The word Jabba is actually the Hebrew word for frog. Look at that picture. You think? I don't think so. You know, maybe, maybe, maybe there's a connection here, right? Let's see how well you do outside of Bible trivia. Let's see. Attila the, Buffy the, Conan the, yeah, see, you guys spend a lot more time watching TV than you actually do reading the Bible, right? Now, Unfortunately for Rahab, she was known as Rahab the harlot, which by the way, was a, a sin, a crime that was punishable by stoning according to God's law. And on top of that, Rahab, who's in the genealogy of Jesus, she's not even Jewish. She's a Canaanite, which means she's the arch enemy of the Jews. So understand this creates some tension in the genealogy of Jesus because now, right in the middle of the Christmas story, we have a prostitute. Which again brings up the question, why would, Matthew, why would Matthew point that out? Well, to answer that question, I have to tell you the story of Rahab the harlot. And when the story opens, the nation of Israel has just become a brand new nation. You've probably seen the movie, so you know the history of the Jews. They were slaves in Egypt for 430 years. Finally, God raised up a deliverer. His name was Moses, and Moses led those people to freedom. 
But on their way to the promised land, the land that God said, I am going to give it to you, you just trust me, they decided not to trust God. And because they wouldn't go in, they didn't trust God, God says, listen, I'll let you wander around in the desert for 40 years and think about it. So on top of being slaves for 430 years, now they've been wandering around the desert for 40 years, and now they're getting ready to make their way in to the promised land. And let me just point out something here because I, I, I don't think sometimes we connect the dots. When we talk about the promised land, this was the same land that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph lived in before the Jews ended up in Egypt. And last week, if you were here, we looked at Joseph and his brothers. We, we saw how the Jews actually ended up in Egypt. Because remember, the brothers sold Joseph into slavery, and he was a slave, but then he became the prime minister of Egypt. Meanwhile, back at the farm, there's a famine. And Jacob, the dad, said, boys, I want you to go to Egypt and get some grain, or we're going to starve to death. So they, they go there, and they encounter their brother that 20-some years earlier they sold into slavery, and there's that great family reunion, and, and Joseph forgives them. But remember, we ended last week. Joseph said, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to take care of your family. I'm going to take care of your livestock. You're going to come here, and I'm going to take care of you. So the brothers went home and got daddy and mommy and all the relatives and brought them to Egypt because there was food in Egypt. But Joseph's family was a very, very prolific family, and they begin to multiply. And hundreds of years go by, and you get to the first chapter of Exodus, and it says there's a new Pharaoh in the land. And he didn't remember the special relationship between the original Pharaoh and Joseph. And by now, he's afraid of the Jews because the Jews have grown to such a point. He's thinking, they're going to take us over, and we're going to become the slaves. So the Pharaoh decides to make the Hebrew people slaves. And they're slaves for 430 years. But now when we pick up the story this weekend, they're on their way back into the promised land. But when you think about it, they're not really going to the promised land. They're really just going back home. They're just going back home. But now it's not just Joseph and a few family members. Historians tell us that now it's somewhere between two and two and a half million Jews that are making their way back into the promised land. And just as God instructed, you know, they crossed the Jordan River and they began to run the inhabitants out of the land so they could take their home back. And in the process of running out the inhabitants, they come up against the city of Jericho. It's their next big obstacle. And so Joshua, their commander, their leader, he decides to send a couple of spies into the city to see what they're up against. And as these spies are making their way around the city, somebody spots them. They realize that they've been spotted, and so they duck into someone's house. And the house that they duck into belongs to a woman named Rahab. And she happens to be a prostitute. And for some reason, she lets them in. She decides to hide them. But understand, they've been spotted, so there are soldiers going door to door looking for them. So they show up at Rahab's house, and we're not told why. But instead of just barging in, you know, into Rahab's house and doing a search, they decide to knock on the door. Now, my guess is this. You probably don't want to barge into a known prostitute's house because you don't know who you might stumble across. Literally, right? And so they knock on the door, and Rahab comes to the door, and they say, listen... There's a couple of spies here inside the city, and someone said they saw them going into your house. Have you seen them? And Rahab lies. She says, yeah, I saw them. Nice guys, those Jewish guys. Had tea and crumpets together, and then they left. In fact, they left just before sundown. Now, that's significant because Jericho was a gated fortress city, and so every day at sundown, they would lock the gates, and they wouldn't open them back up to sunrise the next morning. So between sundown and sunrise, nobody could enter or leave the city. So basically what she was saying is this. I think they got out of the city right before we locked the gates. Hey, but if you take off, you might find them. So the guards, they take off looking for these two spies. Once they're out of sight, Rahab goes back into the house, and she has this really interesting conversation with these guys. Let's pick up the story, Joshua chapter 2, verse 8. 
before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and she said to them, and you should really go read this story. It's really kind of cool how she hid them. But she went up and she, and she said to them, I know that the Lord. Now, that's an interesting, how many times do we read the Lord in the Bible? But the translators here use a word that was the most lofty name for God. In fact, it was a game that was, it was a name that was held in such high esteem, the Jews would not even say the name out loud. They would only write it. But literally it means this, the existing one. So Rahab says this, I know that the existing one, that's how she refers to the Hebrew God, the existing one. I caught a little glimpse of what this is like yesterday. Uh, Laura and I took our grandkids to have breakfast with Santa. And uh, they got to hang out with him for a little while. Uh, and kind of this little private thing was just us in the room with them and Santa. And, and my grandson, Brennan, is six. And he's very, very shy. And uh, he's, he's a little bit like his grandpa. He's got a little mischievous side to him. And uh, so he goes up and he stands beside Santa. And he won't look at him, but he's kind of like talking to him. And he says, I'm pretty sure you know I got in trouble on the bus. <laughs> I thought that was, he thinks Santa's the existing one, right? But he said, I changed seats, I'm doing better now. But I know you know all about this, right, right? <laughs> Rahab's like, listen, I know that the existing one has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the existing one dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to Sion and Og, the two kings of the Amorites, east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. I mean, they're hearing this through the grapevine. There was no CNN, right? When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord, the existing one, your God is God. And I don't know why, but the translators here leave out in the Hebrew a definite article. Literally what she says is this. For I know that for the Lord, your God is the God in heaven above and on the earth below. So Rahab says to these two spies she's just met, listen, in spite of my tradition, in spite of everything that I've been taught, when it comes down to it, I believe your God can beat up my God. I mean, that's what she's saying. I believe that your God, whoever your God is, is the God who reigns and rules over any God that I have in my belief system. Verse 12. Now then, please swear to me by the existing one that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assure her. So like, hey, you scratch our back, we'll scratch your back. If you don't tell what we're doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. And these guys take off and eventually they make their way back to, uh, to Joshua and they kind of give them a rundown of their entire clandestine experience. And they say, Joshua, listen, those people in Jericho, they are scared to death of us. We wouldn't be surprised if we show up tomorrow and they just open the gates and surrender and let us walk right into the city. And if you've been around church for a while, you probably are familiar with the next part of the story. We even have a little song. We won't sing it this weekend. Uh, but it's the battle of Jericho. And you'll remember if you've been around church that Joshua prayed to God and said, okay, how do we take down this city? Because it's a walled city and it's fortified. What do we do? And God says, listen, I got a plan for you, but you're not going to need your weapons. You will need your sneakers, okay? Because 
Once a day for six days, you guys are just going to walk around the city. And you can imagine those guards looking over the city wall at all these Jews just walking around, making a lap around the city, right? You're going to do that once a day for six days. On the seventh day, you're going to march around seven times. Make sure you get a good night's rest. And then the priests are going to blow the trumpets, and the walls are going to fall down. Any questions? And Joshua's like, yeah, how do I tell this to my commanders, right? So he goes back, and he, he reports, this is how we're going to take the city to the commanders. And I'm sure they're thinking, sounds more like the Rose Parade than an attack on a city. But if that's what we're supposed to do, we will do it. We will trust God. And they do it, and it, the walls collapse just as God said it would happen. By the way, you say, well, why would there be such a strange strategy to take out the city? Very simply this, it was so that God would get the credit for the victory. It's so that that word would continue to go to the surrounding nations around Jericho that you don't mess with Israel's God. You don't mess with the existing one. But as you can imagine, when that wall collapsed, it was pure chaos. I mean, the people of Jericho are paralyzed with fear. The army of Israel, they rush in, they take the city. But what's interesting, in the midst of all this chaos, in the midst of all this terror, in the midst of all this bloodshed, God spares one family because of the faith of a Canaanite hooker. She had no knowledge of God. She didn't even know what to call him. But she had heard enough about his reputation that she had faith in him. And this is how the story concludes. Joshua chapter 6, verse 22. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, go into the prostitute's house and bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath to her. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho. And now look at this phrase. I'd never seen it until I was getting ready for this message. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. She lives among the Israelites to this day. Why does she live? How does she live among the Israelites to this day? Rahab lives among the Israelites as a reminder of something that was foreign to their thinking, and it was this. Israel's God, the existing one, is a God of grace and mercy and forgiveness. So much so that he spared an enemy. So much so that he spared an outsider. So much so that he even spared a prostitute who by his own rules, his own law, should have been stoned to death. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. But that, see, that's not the end of the story. Because sometime later, a guy named Salmon is in Starbucks getting a coffee. And he sees this little cutie. And he finds out her name is Rahab. And he says, hey, have a cup of coffee with me. A couple of weeks later, he sends her a text. says, hey, I got some popcorn. Let's get together and have a Netflix date, right? Things are getting a little more serious. They get all decked out. They go to raise for a great dinner. One thing leads to another. They fall in love. And this Jewish man, okay, ends up marrying this Canaanite woman. And they have a baby boy. And they name him Boaz. Have no idea why they named him Boaz. But they named him Boaz. And when Boaz grows up and becomes an adult, he's introduced to a young woman. Her name is Ruth. She's not Jewish. She's a Moabite. And they get married, and they have a baby. And Boaz and Ruth's great-grandson is King David himself. And Matthew brings all of this to the attention of his readers. And I'll tell you why. It's because he knew that this story of Rahab the prostitute 
illustrates beautifully the story and the message of Christmas. I mean, think about it. Here is a woman who should have been condemned by the law of God. She was an outsider. She was an enemy. She was a lawbreaker in a time when life was ruled by the law. I'm talking about all of the thou shalts and the thou shalt nots. But in the story of Rahab, this is what we see. We see God saying, listen, my grace and my mercy and my forgiveness trumps my law and my judgment. In fact, my grace and my mercy and forgiveness is so broad, I can save Rahab, I could spare her life, I could forgive her, and on top of that, I can also incorporate her into the lineage of Jesus, the Messiah. It is absolutely incredible. It is the perfect illustration of the message of Christmas. But see, I don't think that Rahab's story is that much different than our story. Because just as she had a nickname, Rahab the harlot, my guess is all of us as we sit here this weekend, if we're honest, we have a nickname. For some of you, you have nicknames that you have tried and tried to put behind you for years, right? But every once in a while, you, you run into somebody from high school or college or somebody at a previous job, and you're reminded that in their mind at least, you still have a nickname, you have a reputation, you have a label, right? And no matter what you do, you cannot shake it. For some of you, as you sit here this weekend, you have a nickname in the mind of your ex-spouse. So you got married, you were Charlie. But when the marriage blew up, you were Charlie the cheater. Or you were Angie, but when the marriage ended, now you're Angie the adulteress. And you so wish you could go back, turn back time, and somehow undo what you did. But you can't. You can't go back and undo it, and you will be forever stuck with this label. Some of you have a nickname, and only you know the nickname. Because it's a secret. It's a secret part of your life. It's a, it's a habit in your life. But you know what it is, right? And I, I think it's really easy for us to sit here on the weekend and look down our noses at someone like Rahab the harlot. Truth is, it's our story. Because see, we have these nicknames, we have these labels, we have these reputations, and in the same way, when you think about approaching God, the first thing that comes to your mind is your nickname. And so you back off and you think, really? God would never take me serious, why even try? I got a nickname, I got a label, I got a reputation, and I'm certainly that God knows about it. I actually made a list of some nicknames. Maybe one of them describes you, and I just picked some random names. So if your name is stuck with something that's not good, and you get angry about it, it's probably because you're guilty, okay? So this is just a coincidence, okay? Here's the first one. Maybe they describe you. Larry the Liar. By the way, aren't you glad God isn't still writing the Bible? Can you imagine what nickname he may put with you? Tim the Terrific. Good to see you, Tim. Let's go back to Larry the Liar. I mean, you know your track record. Nobody believes it. You know it. Nobody believes a word you say. 
You've deceived so many people. You've told so many people. You know that every time your name comes up in a conversation and somebody says, hey, you know, Larry said, you, you know what everybody's saying? Yeah, you better take it with a grain of salt, right? Larry the liar. Carry the coveter. Every time somebody gets a nicer house, a nicer car, a promotion, you are so bitter. Now, nobody knows about it because you go to church and you carry a Bible. But deep down, you know, like, wow. Gretchen the greedy. Never enough. Always want more. That's why you're not very generous. I promise you, you don't tithe because you're just, you're just greedy. Gary the gossip. Now, you don't call it gossip. It's discernment, you know. And you're just sharing it with other people so they can pray intelligently. You're not gossiping, right? So, right? Here's one. Sally the slanderer. Yeah, you'd never own a gun, but you'll murder with your tongue. You know, you're like a verbal terrorist, you know. Larry the luster. Yeah, your wife thinks you're checking out the stock market and reading the news. But you know what's going on, right? Gail the glutton. Drew the druggie. Al the alcoholic. Joe the jerk. You know, everybody, every time people talk about you, they just ignore me. He's just a jerk, right? Thelma the thief. Jeff the jealous. Paul the proud. See, right now, some of you are thinking, haven't hit me yet. That's you, Paul the proud. We just got to you, okay? <laughs> You're good, okay? See. Like it or not, we all have a nickname. Don't we? And so when Matthew got to this point in the genealogy, you, what, what's he, he throws in Rahab the harlot. And maybe, maybe we started the series this way. Maybe it's because Matthew had a nickname. Remember Matthew, the tax collector. And one day Jesus walked up and he looked at Matthew, the tax collector. But Jesus didn't say, hey, Matthew, once you quit collecting taxes, once you quit being a tax collector, follow me. Or, or once you repent and once you promise to never do it again, Matthew, follow me. Or Matthew, listen, once you get your act together and you get a new reputation, Feel free to follow me. Mm -mm. Matthew remembered Jesus walking up and looking him in the eyes and saying, hey, Matthew, let's hang out together. Come follow me. And Matthew knows that he's getting ready to tell the story of Jesus, and it's the story of Jesus who invited all kinds of people with all kinds of nicknames and all kinds of reputations and all kinds of labels into a relationship with him while they still had all of their issues. Do you know why he did that? And you gotta understand this because having grown up in a legalistic background, <laughs> having grown up in, in a background where I constantly lived in the fear of God. Did you know as a kid, we lived in this little 900 square foot house in East Durham and it had a really ratchety set of stairs in the backyard, very tall. Did you know when I sinned, when I lied to my parents, if I stole a pack of gum, do you know I would not go out that door and go down those stairs because I thought that is the perfect opportunity for God to have these stairs collapse and kill me because I just lied to my mom. That is, I'm not kidding, that's the kind of fear. This is what I want you to understand. Matthew wanted people to know that Jesus is a Jesus whose righteousness did not overshadow his mercy. He wanted us to know that this is a Jesus whose holiness didn't overshadow his grace and his forgiveness, regardless of our nicknames, regardless of our labels, regardless of our reputations. And so Rahab, 
the prostitute, the hooker, the harlot, the ho-ho-ho, became the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus, the Messiah, which is the point of the story. I mean, isn't that powerful? Doesn't that just want to make you rethink your whole approach to God? I mean, see, because again, the story of Christmas is God did for you what you cannot do for yourself. And regardless of your nickname, that you have this weekend, regardless of your reputation, regardless of the label. You, think about this, you and I, we have been invited into a relationship with the God, the existing one, who longs to have a relationship with us. And you don't have to wait until you clean up your act. You don't have to wait until you get it all together. The message of Christmas is that you have been invited, regardless of your past, you have been invited into a relationship with God right now. That's the story. That's, it. That's Christmas. It's, it's that God decided to pay for sins of all mankind once and for all. And he said, I want to do it because I want to be in a relationship with you. And understand, yeah, once the relationship has begun, he's going be to begin to chip away at all the mess in your life, the issues in your life that... To be honest, you don't want there anyway. But that's not in order to begin the relationship. It's the result of being in the relationship. So I want to wrap up this series, and I'm going to wrap it up by asking you a question. And I just want you to be honest. We're in church. You can't be honest here. You can't be honest anywhere. Here's the question. How many of you would be willing to say, if people really knew me, really knew me, if they knew me the way God knew me, if they knew me the way my spouse knew me, if they could somehow peel back all the layers of my life, if they could see the real me, they would say that I have a nickname or two associated with my name. I'll be the first one to put up my hand. Just raise your hand if you would say, yeah, if people really, really knew me, come on, come on. All those that proud don't have your hand up yet. Go ahead and get it up, proud. Um, yeah, look at us. We're a mess, aren't we? We're an absolute mess. So this weekend, I want to close our service by doing something different. And I haven't done this in 22 years since I started a church here. I want to lead you in a prayer. And if you're new, if you're a visitor to Hope, feel free to sit this one out. Maybe you're only here because somebody said, hey, come to church and I'll date you. Or I'll take you to Mimi's afterwards, right? Good. We're, just, we're still glad you're here. Or it's Christmas. Hello. Welcome back, uh, Catholics. But anyway, uh, <laughs> just a joke, just a joke, just a joke. I'm a recovering Baptist. I'm just joking. But anyway, sit this one out. Last thing I want to do is make you feel uncomfortable. But I want to lead us in a prayer. And this, this, this prayer is aimed at all of us who grew up with this sense of, if I don't, God won't. And we're still, just like sometimes we're trying to earn our parents' love, we're, we're trying to earn God's love, and we're constantly negotiating with God. But now maybe through this series, you've come to the place where you're ready to stop all of that nonsense, and you're just ready to abandon that way of thinking. And from here on out, you want to approach God from the standpoint of grace and mercy and forgiveness. 
If you fall into that group, I want to give you the opportunity to declare that today. And so I want us to pray. And I, I want, I'm going to repeat a prayer. And I, I want us to declare this out loud. I've never asked you to pray out loud. And I want you to declare out loud what God says is true of you, regardless of your nickname. So I'm, going to, I'm just going to ask us to bow our heads. And if you're ready for that change in your relationship with God, I'm going to give it just a couple of words. I'm just going to ask you to repeat after me. Heavenly Father, I think we can do better than that. Heavenly Father, I believe your grace is more powerful than my nickname. I believe Christ died to pay for my sin that my nickname represents. I believe you've offered me a new nickname. Forgiven, accepted, loved. Teach me to live my life in accordance with who you say I am. And now I'm going to pray and close this in prayer. Father, I just want to thank you for this moment, for this truth, for this reminder. I want to thank you for including Rahab in the story because if we're honest, we're a lot more like her than we think. And I pray that from here on out that we will begin to approach you not based on what we've done or what we haven't done, but based on what you've done for us. And Father, I pray that in your grace and in your mercy and through your forgiveness, we will find the ability to let go of our inaccurate view of who you are and that we will begin to see you as a heavenly father who loves us unconditionally. In fact, you love us so much that you sent your son to be born in a manger only 33 years later to die on a cross so that he could be our savior. Thank you for this good news that is indeed for all people. We love you and we thank you for what you're doing in our lives. Amen.